This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hey there, everybody. The Mets lose two out of three to the Boston Red Sox. What a stunner. They are seven games under 500. They are seven games back in the loss column for the third and final wild card spot. Other than that, how's everybody doing? We got a little tease this weekend against the Red Sox. Tiny bit, little bit of a tease. The win on Friday slash Saturday, thinking, hey, maybe the Mets can win a series in Boston against a quality opponent. And then they did not pitch well on Saturday and Sunday. And here we are. Another series loss. They are four and five out of the all-star break. And with a week and a day to go before the MLB trade deadline, I think we all know the reality. More on that later and what they should do, what they can do, what they won't do. As far as this series is concerned, let's start from the beginning. I made the trip down to Boston. I was very excited. It's a rare opportunity to see Fenway Park. And I did sit in the monster seats on Friday night for four and a half innings, of course, until there was rain and thunder and lightning and flooding. And obviously we had to abandon the monster seats. But I must say, I always want to be honest with everybody. The monster seats were freaking awesome. It was a very unique experience in that while I don't normally like sitting in the outfield, you're on top of the action. So the way I would compare it is it felt as if we were watching the game from the center field camera. You know, the way we watch games on TV. Uh, my son and I were calling balls and strikes, had a good look. You know, obviously, bat off the ball, it's a little confusing because usually at a game, I'm sitting behind the plate, so you're kind of used to that angle. But for the four and a half innings, we were there. I know he loved it. He had a great time. I had a great time. And, and there were weird things about the monster seats that I appreciate maybe more than some. First of all, you get a table. I mean, who who doesn't want a table when you're at a baseball game? And I don't just mean for my scorebook, for the hot dog, for the peanuts, for the water, for the beer. Yeah, I apologize. My six-year-old really wanted a beer, had to buy him one. I'm just kidding. But the table was great. There's a lot of leg room, which for most seats at Fenway Park, which I certainly experienced on Saturday, there's very little leg room. I mean, the building was created over 100 years ago, and while they have changed the seats to make some of them more comfortable, they're not all the wooden originals from 1912, you are really crammed at Fenway Park. And I think you you feel it more today than maybe you would have 15 years ago because Shea Stadium was a little bit comparable. Yankee Stadium was a little bit comparable. But now when you go to a game at the new Yankee Stadium or you go to a game at City Field, it's just wider. Maybe because we got fatter as people. And because our asses are bigger, they decided let's make bigger seats for all of us. That may have something to do with it. Because back in 1912, other than our president, who was rather large, William Howard Taft, um, listen, actually, William Howard Taft was very plump. He He's the reason why you have the seventh inning stretch. I don't know if you guys know that. Because <laughs> he wanted to get out of his seat and he stretched. But the monster seats were a really cool experience. The only negative was there are two negatives. Number one, they are really expensive. And the one thing I wonder about for myself and everybody listening, is it really worth that cost? You know, when you spend $400 a ticket, which is the face value to sit on top of the monster, 
I think we're expecting all you could eat food behind home plate, first row, not center field. As good as the seat was in center field. So, A, it's very highly priced. And I wondered about that. Is it worth it? As good as the seat was, is it worth it? And then the other problem was, as we all experienced, if you're watching the game at home, there was not only a rain delay, the game never resumed. So for some of us, I'm going to raise my hand here, who goes to Boston with their family, and you know we're talking about going to the aquarium and the science museum and doing the duck boat, I couldn't exactly make the 2 o'clock makeup game and then a 7 o'clock game that was originally supposed to be at 4 o'clock. So the compromise I had with my family was, you're not going to the resumed game, but we will go to the originally scheduled Saturday game. So me and my oldest son, Jack, got four and a half innings of the Friday game. We did not get the resumption. Now, Pete, do we get a victory? Like in the annals of Evan going to Met games and Jet going to Met games, does that Friday night for four and a half innings leading with a lead count as a win for us, even if we weren't there for the last five innings? Oh, no question, especially with Vogelback hitting a home run. That That is a win for everybody. <laughs> was it that was stunning by the way yeah of course this, the the whole four inning game was really stunning because think about the way that game starts Kodai Senga's on the mound he gives up a leadoff hit to Jaron Duran who's a hell of a player by the way he promptly steals second goes to third on a bad throw by Francisco Alvarez so we are literally 45 seconds into the Red Sox turn at bat and they're already set up with a runner on third and nobody out. And Kodai Senga gets Justin Turner to ground out. And Francisco Lindor actually made a really good play on that ground ball. And boom, it's one nothing. Not really to the fault of Kodai Senga. So the Red Sox instantly popped up that first run. And after that, I thought Kodai was going to dominate because he got a few more ground balls to end the first. He looked very good to start the second inning. And then at absolute nowhere in the bottom of the second inning, and it always starts with that innocent-looking walk. He walked Tristan Casas. He gave up a base hit to Connor Wong, and then Yu Cheng on an 0-2 pitch with me and Jet screaming, throw him the ghost fork ball. He leaves one up, and Chang pounds one off the green monster. Now, where we were sitting... I'll give you the description. We were more towards center field off of the monster. In fact, we were the last two seats on the green monster all the way to the right, which I think I'd argue is better than being all the way to the left. Because even though you're more on top of the field when you're on the left, because you're closer, obviously, to home plate, we had a direct vision of home plate. So calling balls and strikes was a lot of fun. Had to squint the eyes a little bit, but balls and strikes were a lot of fun just to look closely because you're not on top of the action as much as, you know, when you're watching on TV. But anyhow, Yu Chang hits one off the wall. It's 3 nothing, and it was a stunning 3 nothing because I really thought Senga was starting to groove after that leadoff hit to Durant, and down 3 nothing. I didn't say this out loud because I really don't want to be overly negative in front of my kids, but I'm thinking to myself, what the hell are we watching? Like, this is going to be a disaster. This is going to be a nightmare. They made Cutter Crawford look like Cy Young for the first two innings. This offense isn't going to score, and we're going to lose a very meek, you know, 5 nothing game. As this is happening, the rain clouds are hovering over Fenway Park, and I knew there was a chance of rain, but it had been held off, and I'm thinking, right, maybe we'll get lucky. And then the Met rally in the third inning was the first sign of a little life from this team. They get a leadoff double by Beatty, and of course, of course, they can't move him at all. Marcana pops up, Luis Giorme pops up, and then credit to Brandon Nimmo, who has really added the pop this season. That's the big compliment on Brandon Nimmo's season this year. Defensively, he's been mostly good. He still doesn't steal bases. His batting average has been sinking. His OPS is not nearly as high as it's been in the past. He's not getting on base as much, but he is hitting for power. So despite all those negatives I mentioned, let's hand it to Brandon Nemo because that was an important two-run home run because otherwise the Mets were about to waste a leadoff double. And then Hoff mentioned it. After they get another leadoff double in the fourth, Daniel Vogelback behind in the count hit an absolute bomb. And 
It was stunning because anytime Daniel Vogelback really gets a hold of one, none of us see it coming. That's why I was so annoyed on Sunday night when Carl Ravitch said, boy, that Vogelback's got a lot of pop. And all of us are watching saying, does he? Yeah, once in a while, it'll hit, hit a home run. It'll happen here and there. But he's hit six home runs this season. That's a lot of pop. But he got a hold of that one, and it gave the Mets the lead, a stunning turn of events after being down 3 nothing, And they took a 4-3 to lead, and yeah, I'm feeling good. And then the range just came in. And I don't know if they said this on TV, Pete, but it's starting to pour in the bottom of the fourth inning. The count is one and one or one and two on Alex Verdugo. And I'm even saying a jet and everybody around us, like they got to stop this game. It's pouring. I put the scorebook away. I gave up. Like I, I can't keep scoring with these rain conditions. And I'm even, I'm the one saying to my son, Hey, we should go undercover. And he's like, nah, I'm good, man. I'm good. Let's handle the rain. So we're both, or at least I'm thinking, man, they got to stop this game. And Alvarez stopped the game himself because Alvarez calls timeout, goes to the mound to talk to Senga as it's just pouring outside. And then it it was almost like peer pressure on the umpires, on Doug Eddings and Alfonso Marquez. They're finally like, all right, maybe we should stop the game. And then for the next two hours, we had the time of our life. I'm sure you've seen the videos on social media. There was flooding all over Fenway Park, which for a six-year-old, is the coolest thing they've ever seen. When you've got water flowing down the stairs and water just flowing through the corridors, I think it's messy. He thinks it is the greatest thing in the world. And we walked around Fenway Park. We checked out every nook and cranny of this building. I got to tell you, Pete, I had a great two-hour rain delay. Me and the big man had a fun time. All right, so the serious question is, how did his sneakers end up? Were they okay or were they just, did you have to toss them afterwards? Well, Pete, the story moves on because (laughs) our damage for our sneakers did not occur from the flooding at Fenway Park. It occurred with the fact that I went down to Boston with my wife, with both of my sons and with my in-laws. My in-laws decided to come as well. For this Friday night game, it was just me and Jet. So my wife's back at the hotel. My youngest son, Spence, is back at the hotel. The in-laws are back at the hotel. And we decided, since I was unsure about the parking situation, and we were only staying about, I'd say, three miles away, we'll take the train. We'll have the full Boston experience. So we took the T train from pretty much the uh, Science Center, for anyone that knows Boston, to Fenway Park. About a 25-minute train ride. It was jam-packed. It was disgusting. Jet loved it. I thought it was the worst thing in the world. But now, Pete, the game gets rained out. We stayed there to the very end. We get notified like 5 after 10. Hey, game is over. It is pouring outside. So what do you do? Like, what what the hell do you do? Like, I don't have an umbrella. You go outside, you're going to get absolutely soaked. I'm not a big Uber guy, but I knew got to do an Uber. Like I, I, I'm not like anti-Uber. I just don't use Ubers very often. I drive everywhere. So I get this Uber, and me and my son run outside to meet him at the predetermined location of this Uber, and we got soaked. I mean, I, as soaked as you can be to the point where I gave up halfway through and said, let's just get undercover. We got undercover, notified the Uber driver, and 35 minutes later, he picked us up and we got back. It was it was a shit show and a half getting out of Fenway Park in a seething rainstorm because, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, what the hell were my options at that point? Oh, wait, wait, explain to me how it took them 35 minutes to find you. Well, because they give you on Uber a predetermined location. So let's say it was, I think it was like 325 Boylston Street, right? Sure. I'm looking for Boylston Street. It's six blocks away. We're freaking in a rainstorm. <laughs> so I get undercover with him, call the Uber driver through their special, like, direct number and say, look, I can't get there. I'll give you a massive tip, but you got to get to this location, which was some hotel that was right near Fenway Park. And there was so many cars. It's raining. It was just such a crap show that it it took forever. But we survived. We got out of there and did not come back on Saturday for the 2 o'clock game. 
<laughs> instead went to the science museum. Yeah. I had did, to do some family stuff, Pete. You know how it is. Uh, one last question about the Friday night game. Did uh, did Jet decide to do like a little slip and slide action in the uh, puddles of Fenway? I'm a bad dad because I would not allow it. He wanted to. <laughs> I said, son, I don't think uh, your Kodai Senga jersey will survive this. Dude, I swear to God, I- I'm not even going to joke. Your kid, what, there was a video that I see of some dude like just like no shirt on and yeah. just diving in. That wasn't Jet that walked past nah. him, right? Because there's a kid with the with the metros, and I'm like, that it's a, that's a kid passing an adult, and I, hey, that can't be Jet, could it? Nah, nah oh, okay. I'm not. I'm not that cool of a dad. I'm not that cool <laughs> of a dad. But there were tons of Met fans there. Tons of Met fans there, and I got to meet a lot of them. They were very nice. They're all big fans of Pete Hoffman. So it was a very good experience over at the Fenways, at the Fens, as they call it. I'm glad they were able to complete the victory. I certainly didn't have that feeling, you know, when I finally turned the game on Saturday afternoon and they went to Grant Hartwig out of the bullpen. And I was thinking, would it have made sense? And I know we had mentioned this before in a previous suspended game. Would it have made sense? to actually start Max Scherzer in the suspended game with one out in the fourth inning. Because when you really think about it, if Max Scherzer could give you six solid innings, your baseball game's over. You don't have to use anybody else. Obviously, the negative to that is, yeah, you use Max Scherzer in that game. What the hell's your plan for game two of the quasi-doubleheader? So it was a thought, because in this day and age where starters, Max included, are not going seven or eight innings. You've already got the 10 outs from Kodai Senga. And it really is a start. When you think about it, you come into a game with one out, nobody on in the fourth inning. It's not like you're coming in with two on and two out. But Buck obviously decided to go to Hartwig. And credit to the Met bullpen. The Met bullpen on Saturday afternoon really did a good job, especially Grant Hartwig. He comes into that weird spot. Immediately, Gourmet makes a great play. He picks off Tristan Casas. He had a one, two, three, fifth inning. Uh, even David Peterson was able to work his way out of trouble. Dominic Leone had a cleat inning. Brooks Raley made you a little nervous, but he got through the eighth inning. And then finally, David Robertson shut the door, and they made up for the fact that the Mets had so many opportunities late in this game to break it wide open. I mean, there were so many big ones, especially, and nothing could top it, bases loaded, nobody out. In the eighth inning, they get a leadoff hit by McNeil, a single by Alonzo, a what should have been error off of the bat of Mark Vientos, but they called it a hit good for Mark. They have bases loaded, nobody out with the rookies coming up, Alvarez and Beatty, and they couldn't bring them in. And then in the ninth, they had another great opportunity. Got a bunt hit, a shocking bunt hit from DJ Stewart. Had two on, nobody out with the top of the order coming up. And Brandon Nimmo strikes out, and Lindor grounds out, and McNeil grounds out. So those were horrible warning signs to me that they were going to find a way to blow this game. When you're leaving five guys on in the eighth and ninth inning, four of them in scoring position, it was an awful sign, but credit to them at bullpen, like I said. Outside of David Peterson giving up a run, that leadoff triple that he gave up to Tristan Casas, who had a tremendous series, the bullpen shut the door. And the Mets won a game on Saturday afternoon slash Friday night that gave you hope again. Like, I'm serious. All of a sudden, you're five games under 500. Everybody in the National League wildcard race has been crumbling. Can, can we admit that? The San Francisco Giants crumbling. The Miami Marlins had been crumbling. The Philadelphia Phillies crumbling. All of a sudden, you glance over at the National League wildcard race and you're thinking to yourself, huh, they're not completely buried. Now, the Giants have lost five in a row now. The Diamondbacks have lost four in a row. The only team that recently got hot was Cincinnati after they had struggled for a while. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
So I'm thinking going into Saturday night, all right, another opportunity for Max Scherzer. Another chance. The Mets have now put together like a mini streak here. The last game against the Dodgers, two out of three against Chicago, the opener against Boston. So what's that? Four out of five, right? Four out of five. Four out of five. The great Max Scherzer on the mound against James Paxton on a Saturday night in Boston with half the building filled up with Mets fans. What could possibly go wrong? This is like a chance to wake up from the dead. And then I sit down Saturday and I took the whole family and they loved it, at least the first couple of innings. They loved Fenway Park. First chance uh, for my youngest son, Spence, to see it, for my wife to see it, for my father-in-law. I think he told me he'd been there like 20 years ago, but he doesn't remember. Walking down Lansdowne Street, it's like a baseball festival. It really is. All the stores that they have, the, the hot dogs, even though the, the Fenway Park hot dogs suck. I'm going to do an examination on this uh, on the fan on Monday. But I'm going to expose something that's going to boggle everybody's mind. I'm not going to waste your time on it with the Rico. I'll do it with the uh, debut edition of Evan and Tiki. I think that the Boston Red Sox and Fenway Park are running a fraud, a fraud bar. Okay? I, I have got evidence to back me up, but they are really putting the wool over all of our eyes down there in Boston. I'll explain that on the air at some point. Anyhow, we get into the ballpark. Max Scherzer's on the mound, sitting behind the plate, different vantage point than the monster seats. And Max Scherzer, <laughs> should I call him a piece of craps? Should we whip that out again? Yeah, my man, Mr. Piece of Craps. Home run first inning, Jaron Duran. one nothing Red Sox. Second inning, here's Tristan Casas. Home run, 2 nothing Red Sox. After the Mets give him a lead, they give it to him because Jeff McNeil comes up with a huge two-run single that turned into the Little League home run because of the bad throw to second and all that, the throw that went into left center field. It was great. It was an electric moment at Fenway Park with Met fans chanting, let's go. Everybody's happy. The Mets have a 3-2 lead. And I turn to my family and I say, okay, how many innings will it take for Max Scherzer to take this cute little lead that the Mets have handed him and just completely blow it. And I got, I was stunned. Bottom of the fourth inning, he got through the inning. He struck out three guys. I couldn't believe it. I thought Scherzer was going to glavin it immediately. I thought it was going to be an instant, oh, you gave me the lead? Great. I'm about to give it back. But no, no, he waited until Yu Chang come, came up to lead off the fifth inning before he would blow the lead. That would be the moment. That's home run number three, by the way, if you're keeping track at home. And then the topper. In the sixth inning, he gives up an absolute missile to Tristan Casas, his fourth home run of the freaking game. And a 3-2 lead turns into a 5-3 deficit. I am going to sound like a broken record, but how can I say anything different? Every time, every time, the Mets have handed Max Scherzer a lead. Every time Max Scherzer's been put in one of those big spots, a chance to be a Met, an important game, he ups come up small every single time. Every single time. So let's read some Max Scherzer emails. Why the hell not? Ian Nolan writes, What's happened more this year? Max home runs given up? or the number of pitch comm issues he's had. Yeah, he mixed in a lot of that in the game as well, including one that saved him from a walk. It was like a 3-2 pitch, and Alvarez quickly ran out. He's got his pitch comm issue. They gave him the break. Next pitch, ball four. Uh, hilarious. Uh, Giacomo Chrismel writes, I don't even have to say anything else to blank bleeping say. Scherzer is done. He not only let up four home runs, but probably cost us a better prospect in a prospective trade because of how much Scherzer is done. <laughs> He's so terrible. Uh, I, I keep waiting for Max Scherzer to shut us all up, and it did not happen Saturday night at Fenway Park. Could I ask you a question? Because really what it comes down to, and this season is basically, like we said, it's over. 
I mean, every, every game you get a little bit of hope when the series starts. Right. And then as the series ends, it's back to the same old crap. But seriously, there's a few things. A, we'd like to trade Scherzer. But Cole may have to pay most of the money. Okay, fine. If you can get some prospects back, great. It's off our hands. If he doesn't get traded, A, are you like myself and some other people have been saying it? I hope with the same enthusiasm as he had when he signed that three-year deal with the opt-out, I hope he opts out going into next season so that we don't have to deal with it. Slash, if you're going to use him and we, he can't start anymore, is there a is it bullpen time? Like, what the hell do you do with Max Scherzer? No, because as disappointing as Max Scherzer's been, there are still not five starting pitchers on the New York Mets better. I mean, Carlos Carrasco's not better. That's for damn sure. We've seen Jose Quintana pitch once, so you throw him to the side. Kodai Senga's had a fine year, but that's really it. Like, the Mets don't have enough starting pitching, and that's going to be the biggest issue that we all have to face heading towards this trade deadline when discussing Scherzer and Verlander. As much as I'm going to kill him on today's Rico, and a lot of Mets fans are going to join in for his performance on Saturday, what are the better options, not only this year, but really next year? There just aren't. So get rid of them, trade them, move them to the bullpen. Like, okay. Like I always say, it's easy to get rid of someone. It's tougher to replace them. And right now, as much as Scherzer has been a massive Met disappointment, there aren't a lot of options to replace him. But it was another missed opportunity. Because if he goes out and shuts Boston down after the Mets hand him a 3-2 to two lead, and the Mets win that game Saturday, I think all of a sudden we all wake up Sunday morning thinking maybe this is the run we've been waiting for. Two in a row against Boston, two out of three against Chicago, that win against the Dodgers. I think they would have pulled within five in the wild card race. And Max Scherzer flushes it down the toilet. Now, the Mets offense did nothing else, by the way. And let's not be fooled by the fake rally in the ninth inning that I have to admit. And I feel horrible admitting this, but I have to come clean. I didn't see it. Because as much as I have a rule that says, don't leave early, don't leave early, don't leave early, sometimes you've got to use judgment. And in the fifth inning, when my youngest son had a freak out, because he's not used to being up that late, and my wife left the ballpark and started strollering him down Lansdowne Street and said, don't worry, honey, watch the rest of the game. I knew as the Red Sox were piling it on in the seventh inning, including Justin Turner's home run, I knew I have to be a good husband and leave. Like, what what am I doing at this point in an eight to three game in the eighth inning at Fenway Park while my wife is outside on Lansdowne Street? The Mets are probably not coming back. I have to try to be the best husband I can be. So we left. And if Daniel Vogelback, who had no shot, but if Daniel Vogelback had a game-tying two-run home run in the ninth inning off of Kenley Jansen, number one, I would have been stunned and stupefied. But I would have had no regrets because sometimes you just got to do the right thing. And the right thing at that point was getting the hell out of Fenway Park. But that rally in the ninth inning was one of those Fugazi rallies. It was. You know, Pete Alonso hit a triple, 410 feet. You're thinking, oh, maybe this will get him going. Francisco Alvarez ripped an RBI single. Brett, uh, Mark Vientos had an RBI single. Brett Beatty had an RBI single. But I doubt anybody at home or anybody who made the trip to Boston actually thought that this rally was going to be completed. If this was a year ago, maybe, but not the 2023 New York Mets. That was never going to happen. No, I I agree. It's just that it, this team is, is at the, at the be- very best, they tease you. That's yes. the best you'll get out of it. And by the way, I just back to the Scherzer thing really quickly because you were just saying like, you know, he blew game two, but you were thinking about maybe having him come back and start the two ten resumption of game one. Like I was thinking uh, about it because I looked at the other options, which is what they used: Grant Hartwig, David Peterson. You know, really just a bullpen game from the fourth inning on. And I thought, you know what, with a one run lead. 
Why not? You're not getting more than six innings out of Max Scherzer anyway. If he could give you those six innings, pitch reasonably well, Mets beat the Red Sox, then you piece together game two. Yeah. We would have lost that game too. We would have <laughs> lost both games. I got to be honest. I would not pick you to take over for Buck Show Walter when he gets fired. <laughs> oh, come on. You know what? When I had that idea last year, you loved it. You don't like it this year because Scherzer blows. That's yeah, because he sucks ass right now. He's the worst pitcher in. For the amount of money he makes, he is so brutal. Like, I can't remember a pitcher that has been as awful as he has been all season long consistently. Like, seriously. He, well, no, he's had, a handful, he's had a handful of good starts. The problem is they haven't been in those big moments. They've had games this season that I think a lot of us have said, hey, this game is more significant than others. Going back to the Atlanta game. Uh, the Yankee game when they had a five to one lead certainly felt that way. Obviously, recently, this game on Saturday night, and it seems like every time they need him, he's come up small. And I'm sick and tired of the excuses after the game. Ah, I got to be better. Well, go be better. I know that's not an excuse. That, but I just, I'm sick of hearing the same crap. Ah, I got to be better. Okay, go be better. Go be better. And that leads you to Sunday night baseball. That leads you to, okay. The Red Sox are throwing an opener. Carlos Carrasco, maybe he can rediscover that slider that we heard so much about two starts ago. And the Mets can win a series. And I swear to you, if the Mets had won Sunday night, I would have given you a much more positive Rico. Because I would have looked at it and said, hey, they won a series against a good team on the road. Great. They're building something. They've won five out of seven. They're only six games back in the wild card spot. All right. Not that I'm all in, not that uh, they should go trade prospects for the world, but I, I would have felt better. And instead, we all watched this crap on Sunday night. Carlos Carrasco was lucky. He only gave up five runs and 10 hits in two and a third innings. And that is an amazing sentence. Carlos Carrasco is lucky. He only gave up 10 hits and five runs. Mark Canna gave him how many extra outs in this game? How many extra outs? Gives up a leadoff hit. Yoshida hits that ground out. That comedy of errors turns into Duran being thrown out at the plate. Great. Two outs, nobody on. And what does he do? Walk, walk, RBI single. Before we continue, though, Eduardo Perez went over and over again about how home plate umpire, and I forget who was behind the plate, missed an obvious strike on Justin Turner on one and one. And he's right. I don't think there's anyone who's going to deny that. It was right down the middle. It was called a ball. It made it two and one. But what drove me nuts the entire inning was how Eduardo Perez, and I think David Cohen and Carl Ravage kind of followed suit, that if that pitch is correctly called a strike, the next pitch was a strike and the inning is over. That's not how baseball works. Why the hell do I have to explain that to Eduardo Perez? Justin Turner who is a premier two-strike hitter, who is the king of fouling and wasting off two-strike pitches, in your world now, is just striking out because the previous pitch would have been called a strike? No. Now, that doesn't mean that that missed call didn't affect the inning. Maybe it did. We just can't directly say that Justin Turner was going to strike out on the next pitch. Because as you saw, Justin Turner worked a nine-pitch walk which is why I'm still bitter that Sandy Alderson non-tendered Justin Turner over a decade ago, because I always loved him. But think about that first inning. Carrasco is giving it out. He's given a gift from the gods, and he still gives up a walk, a walk, a wild pitch, and an RBI single. He gets through the seventh by the grace of God, and then the third inning was batting practice. Oh, my God. Every ball is ripped. I don't care if it's on the ground, on the line, in the it doesn't matter. Every ball hit 100 miles an hour, double, single, Marcata outfield assist, double, single, single. I'm sitting there, and I'm behind because I actually went to go see um, Oppenheimer on Sunday night. So I started this game about an hour and a half late, and it was a tremendous movie. I, I mean, I never thought I'd be entertained for three hours and glued to my seat for three hours. Oppenheimer pulled it off. But anyhow, I'm sitting there in the third inning watching this thinking, has Buck Showalter fallen asleep? Granted, the Met bullpen blows. We, we all know that. 
We all know they don't have a lot of options, and you never want to be in a rush to go to your bullpen. But it was painfully obvious that Carlos Carrasco had nothing. Nothing. And when he has nothing, can you at least throw him and us, really us as Met fans, a safety line? What is it, a life vest? A life vest. Get him the hell out of the game. Because shockingly, when he came out of the game and Drew Smith, Trevor Gott, David Peterson, Dominic Leone, and Adam Adovino came in, they actually pitched well. <laughs> it's amazing. Outside of the Devers bomb in the seventh off of Leone, the Met bullpen did everything they could to keep them in the game. And that's why we circle back to the offense. You are facing a guy named Brennan Bernardino. You are facing Chris Murphy, not the senator. You are facing an entire Red Sox bullpen, and the Met offense struggled all night long. And what was infuriating is leadoff man on in the second second inning, nothing. Leadoff man on in the third inning, nothing. Leadoff man on in the fourth inning, nothing. And then obviously the real killer was the sixth inning of this game. By the sixth inning, they're down 5 nothing, but you still have some time. Francisco Lindor hits a wall ball RBI single. They're down 5-1. to one. They've got first and third and nobody out with McNeil, Alonzo, and Vientos coming up. And that was the ball game. Sometimes you can circle it back to that one great opportunity. McNeil hit that soft liner. Alonzo struck out. Alonzo... I was hoping that Saturday was going to be a positive sign too. the 410 foot triple. He had a double earlier in the game and Pete has been better. You are seeing some signs of life from Pete offensively, but two on one out down by four strikes out in a monstrous spot to Josh Winkowski. And then let's play the game. I know what Pete's going to say, but I am curious if we're all being honest with ourselves Sixth inning, Vientos is 0 for 2. He has struck out. He's grounded into a double play. The righty Winkowski's on the mound, and he has to stay in the game. They can't go to one of their 18 lefties because he's only faced one batter. Do you let Mark Vientos hit, or do you go to one of your lefty bats, Daniel Vogelback or DJ Stewart? Pete, gonna, would you have let I, Vientos hit? At this point, I, I'd let the kid hit. I'm sorry. My headphone plopped out of my ear. What would you say? Well, it's very important what I just said. Let I know. Let, I'm sorry. <laughs> let the kid hit. Let, let Vientos hit the ball. Yeah, I think I'm kind of with him. I think that we're getting to the point in the season where let's see what he's got. Uh, but you do have Ogle back on the bench, which Buck would later use in the A thing. It's like he picked his spot. I think he was thinking to himself, I'm going to stick with Vientos here because I want to force Cora later to have to not just stick with whoever is pitching, especially if there's a righty on the mound. You know what I mean? And it kind of worked out that way because in the eighth inning, when Vientos' spot was coming up with two men on base, he went to Chris Martin, a right-hander, which got Vogel back out of the game. So maybe the thought is, if I go to Vogel back now, yeah, I got the right matchup in the sixth, but then in the eighth inning, since the Red Sox have so many lefties, I'm left naked. Like I, oh, I guess I could use Alvarez or Fam, who we would let later use, but you're almost left kind of a man short. Are you telling me that Buck actually thought ahead? Yeah. I'm like, I mean, that, that might be the first time this season that he's thought <laughs> about what's going to happen later on in the game. Or maybe he didn't think ahead and he just fell asleep and was like, yeah, <laughs> I'll let Vientos hit. That, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> Because he ends up pinch hitting for Vientos in the eighth with Vogelback, and Vogelback had a really good at bat till it ended in a strikeout. He had an eleven pitch at bat, and then he ended up using Fam and Alvarez in the ninth inning when it was too late because it was too late. They scored one run. You know, when you look at Sunday night's game, it's easy to just pin it on Carrasco because he was terrible, and he was. Guy gave up ten hits in two and a third innings, but the Met offense should not go without criticism. They were one for seven with runners in scoring position. They blew a ton of big opportunities where they got the leadoff man on. It was just, a, and you did it against the Red Sox bullpen. It's not like James Paxton shut you down again. You got shut down by the Sox bullpen. And it's another buzzkill. 
Another buzzkill series loss for the New York Mets, losing two out of three. Now, a couple of other things to get to. Tommy Pham, I guess, is banged up. I mean, he came into this game and grounded out in the ninth inning, but we haven't seen Tommy Pham start in a couple of days. They need him. I can't believe I'm saying it, but they really do. As good as Canna was in left field with his three outfield assists, Tommy Pham for a while gave this team a little punch offensively. He has cooled off considerably, but think about how valuable he was for a few weeks stretch. And they really need him out there because they're clearly going to trade him. You know, as we get closer to the trade deadline, the Verlander and Scherzer topic is a big one, but there are other names that I think are much easier to move. And if they aren't moved, because here's where I am with this, the seven games out of a playoff spot, while a part of me still dreams of them getting hot and getting back in this thing because of how mediocre the National League's been recently, you have to be smart about it. So where I would lean right now, Pete, is I want to make smart sells. I want to make the sells that don't completely eliminate me from that chance of getting hot and going on a run, but sells that I think they have value. I think I can get something back. And there's that double positive of, A, I'm getting value back and I'm opening the opportunity up for somebody else. So the reason why a Max Scherzer and a David Robertson is not a smart sell in terms of that idea is if you trade David Robertson, you're done. You're done. There's no way to replace him. It doesn't open up an opportunity for somebody else. You're just taking away your best reliever. And while you are probably going to get something really good back, the old dream of, hey, maybe they get hot, they go on a run, that's out the window with a Robertson trade. Tommy Pham is a, and Mark Hanna are trades where it opens up opportunities, specifically for Ronnie Mauricio, if they ever call him up, even though Billy Epler still says he hasn't hit the right check marks. Needs to prove himself defensively, offensively, all that crap. You open up an opportunity for Mauricio, and those are guys that are not going to be here next year. Because you also have to think about next year. The Mets are not rebuilding, they're reloading. So if you trade a guy this year, were they a part of next year's plan? Tommy Pham's a free agent, he won't be. Mark Canna's a free agent, he won't be. David Robertson is probably one of those guys you'd want to re-sign because you're going to need him for this bullpen, hopefully with a healthy Edwin Diaz. And I want to make something clear. That doesn't mean I wouldn't trade David Robertson. It just means I need a really good offer to trade David Robertson. Because I know once I trade him, I'm backing the truck up and I am completely giving up on 2023, I need something really good back to pull the trigger on that. But as far as Tommy Pham and Mark Hanna's concerned, let's go. Like, I don't think anything is holding me back now for trading those guys. I, I have no problem trading those guys. If Omar Narvaez, I mean, hey, listen, the I know Ben Rordfred get called up for the Yankees, but... I'm sure they're looking for a catcher now with uh, Trevino, Trevino going to the uh, out for the season, basically. Like anybody that needs a catcher, Omar Narvaez, let him go. Yeah, you, know, I, we don't, you don't need him on this team. I'm, I'm a thousand percent with you. I wonder if he has any value at all. I mean, he's barely played this year. Uh, it's not like he's done that much when he has played. Yeah, teams could use a catcher. And I think the Yankees are obviously a great example of it, but. I can't imagine they're going to get that much back. Do you think Trevor God has any value? <laughs> God. I keep thinking back to me, and I and I take the blame on this. A week and a half ago, saying, "Ah, oh, that's what I love about Steve Cohen paying that uh that Chris uh Chris Flexen DFA. How great is that?" <laughs> uh, let's get to some of your emails. Igor writes. Uh, even with all the injuries, why do we fr- refuse to bring up Ronnie Mauricio? Instead, bring up Danny freaking Mendick. Mendick can't even field his own position. This is typical Mets. Why not give one of our best prospects a shot and infuse some life into this lineup? What's the harm? Mendick is terrible. Epler can't be gone soon enough. Now, here's the public comments from Billy Epler. And this is uh, via Anthony DeComo, who tweeted this on Sunday. One big reason why the Mets didn't call up Ronnie Mauricio when Luis Guillorme went on the IL this weekend is because they want Mauricio to become more acclimated to second base and the outfield, two newer positions for him. I'd rather that happen in Syracuse than up here, Billy Epler said, 
adding that Mauricio still has offensive benchmarks the Mets want him to reach as well. (laughs) Yeah, these kind of comments and these kinds of reasons make a lot more sense in May. They make a lot more sense in June when you're really in a pennant race. They are on the outskirts of a pennant race. And so now I would want to see him develop at the major league level. I would want to see him here, especially when you look at those other options. Danny Mendick should not be playing for the New York Mets. You want him to be the 26th guy on your roster, fine. But right now, with the injuries on this team, he isn't the 26th guy on the roster. He's going to play. Jeff McNeil's going to play the outfield, and they would need somebody to play second base. Ronnie Mauricio should be up here now. I'm with you on that. Asher Weiss writes, no mas. I'm taking a break from another loss game and another loss series and another loss season to repeat a point I made to the Rico all the way back on June 4th. The Mets should trade all the short-term contracts they can, except maybe Verlander, because where are you replacing him for next season? Back then, I was overly positive. I thought the catastrophic excuse, or the, I'm sorry, I thought the craptastic excuse for a competitive Major League Baseball team was likely to finish 500. That's not happening. After the trade deadline, there's absolutely no reason for us to ever be subjected to a Vogel back, non-at-bat, at-bat again. Vientos can only strike out and play no defense. I have a soft spot for Tommy. Robertson and Rayleigh are effective. Trade them all. It's time to start planning for next year. Hopefully, David Stearns will be around to rescue us. He is right, though, with that thought process. You have to look at next year in the prism of any trade you make. Verlander and Scherzer have to be replaced if you trade them this season and you clear all the complications of paying down most of their salary and getting a prospect back that you deem worthy. You still have to replace those guys. This rotation is not going to be good enough. And I think that's got to be kept in mind when thinking about all these Verlander and Scherzer trades. Okay, but here's the thing, though. Right now, we just saw Scherzer last year have a decent season. Like It was, it was good. It was good enough. In big moments, he wasn't, he wasn't good. We, we got that. Towards the end of the season, he failed. And this year, he just completely shit the bed. And, and he's basically washed. We, we have no, he's not got no value, but we don't know what to do with him. Justin Verlander is somebody who I don't know how much longer he has left. He's shown some great signs, but he was also on the IL for the first half of the season, basically. So it's like, if he's going to pitch well, if he's pitching well now, maybe that is the guy you have the most value for. Maybe he is. You said it yourself. Of course, get rid of McNeil. He sucks. Get rid of Marte. He sucks. Get rid of all these guys that suck. They have no value right now. Who has value? Justin Verlander might be the only actual pitcher you have that has value. But even if he has value, who's eating his innings next year? Do you see what I'm saying? Wait. No, I get that, but but I got to be honest with you. If that's what we're if that's what we're worried about, if we can't if we can't bring in a top end free agent or can't trade for a top end player, we're screwed anyway. Because if no, no, but- there is going to be bad. Here's the thing: is Ev, you got to look at the big picture. We're talking about well, who's going to pitch those innings for Max Scherzer? Who's going to pitch those innings for Justin Verlander? If they're bad. Does it make a difference who's pitching? No, but no, they're, they're not. But, but that's the point. They're not bad. They're bad in terms of the expectations we have for them because they're Hall of Fame pitchers. I mean, I, I give you a good example. Lucas Giolito is a free agent. And one of the intriguing things about Lucas Giolito is that he takes the ball every five days and he'll give you innings. Even if it's a high three, low four ERA, look at some of his numbers over the last couple of years. But I bet. We'll be doing a podcast during the offseason, and we'll say, look, we'll take the 30 starts. We'll take the 185 innings, even if it's a 4 ERA, because we need innings. The reason we'd accept that from Lucas Giolito is because our bar is different. Our bar for Max Scherzer is being an ace. He's not, but he doesn't suck in the context of every five guys you need to pitch. Like, they need pitchers in their rotation. 
So you're going to pay down 80% of Max Scherzer's salary to not have him here, but then have to pay $17 million a year to replace him with a guy who, even in the prime of their career, is not as good as the washed Max Scherzer? You see what I'm saying? I, I do. I do. It's weird because it's like, you're right. We can pitch Max Scherzer. He can get shelled enough for five innings to lose a game, or we could pitch Doug, uh, Dave Peterson and let him go two innings and get shelled and lose a game. What's what's better? None of them are good. That's the problem. There's no good options. Sam because Garcia it, writes, Sam Garcia writes, Evan Pete, I've been listening to the pod since the beginning. I've enjoyed every second, blah, blah, blah. I think the biggest miscalculation the Mets front office has made this offseason was acquiring bullpen arms who had options instead of signing guys who are proven commodities. Furthermore, I wouldn't be opposed to the Mets acquiring relievers with team control beyond 2023 at this year's trade deadline while simultaneously trading guys like Robertson, Pham, and Canna. What say you? First of all, you're right. And I think the Diaz injury only added to that. Now, one of the guys, in fairness, Pete and I and a lot of Mets fans wanted the Mets to sign was Zach Britton. Zach Britton hasn't signed anywhere. So, he wouldn't be the best example. The best example of a guy we both wanted them to sign was Andrew Chafin. And I think if they had added one or, dare I say, two more proven relievers, it certainly would have helped this bullpen because all of the, hey, maybe they'll get something out of this guy, guys, they haven't worked. Up and down. Jeff Brigham was one of those guys. It hasn't worked. John Curtis from a year ago was one of those guys. It hasn't worked. Trusting Drew Smith this season as being a circle of trust guy has not worked. The one move that's worked is Brooks Raley. That one has worked. But for the most part, these bullpen acquisitions, kind of the, hey, this guy has options, low-budget arms, they have not worked. Now, I do agree with you. I think if you're acquiring guys, kind of like what Brody did a couple of years ago with Marcus Stroman, if you're acquiring guys that are under team control for next year, of course I'm in. Because the Mets are clearly, and I'm with them on this, they're going to try to win in 2024. This is not a full rebuild. If this was a full rebuild, you'd be trading everybody for young players. You have to simultaneously, yeah, try to get prospects back for guys that have value, but also say, what's helping me in 2024? It's kind of the crux of this debate Pete and I are having about Scherzer and Verlander, how as down as I am on them, and I don't think I'm contradicting myself, I'm down on Max Scherzer based on the expectations we have for him, but I don't necessarily think trading him just to get rid of him makes the Mets better. That's an emotional thing. And look, I'm an emotional guy too, but to pay off his salary and have him go away to get a B prospect, I don't see the positive in that. You know what? So the Mets can get rid of some of his money to reinvest his money. How about you just keep his money and go buy someone else too? Look, that's, I, I know that's going to bring the payroll up to crazy numbers, but that's the better option. Am I wrong? No, no, you're not. Because if, if, if Cohen keeps on going the way he's going, he's going to be, and I said this the other day, and think about this, Evan. There's 30 teams in the in baseball. Steve Cohen is at the at getting to the point where if he keeps on selling guys like Scherzer and paying their money, he's gonna be he's gonna be paying like 20 percent of the league salary. It's outrageous. <laughs> it's outrageous. And he's because again, like he's gonna stockpile trade Scherzer, pay off all his money, and then bring Lucas Giolito for 20 million dollars a year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Now, there are a couple of young med pitching prospects who have looked good over the last couple of weeks and months. Christian uh, Christian Scott, Tyler Stewart, just to name a few. And we'll spend more time on talking about those guys as the offseason approaches. But two guys I can't figure out. Tyler McGill, since he's been sent down to AAA, has been atrocious. Is that the mental anguish of being a minor league pitcher again? I don't know. And the other guy who's really struggled recently is Joey Lucchese. So the Met starting pitching depth has not fared well down at AAA. It's part of why this whole thing feels so hopeless. <laughs> it's, it's a part of it. Okay, so the one thing, and again, we don't talk about the we talk about the offense as the the one bright spot that we have, and there's where all the prospects are getting called up. So you talked about Mauricio and how you know he's defensively not sound enough to get the call up, which is total bullshit. Because let's be serious. The defense has sucked ass for the past three months. That being said, 
Mark Vientos is now called up. He's been playing pretty much almost every – he played the, every every game in the series, right? He looked okay. Give me a, your take on his approach. You talk about a bad call, about the umpires being terrible. There was a low outside pitch he got strike two on, and he looked furious. The next pitch, about the same placement, was able to drive a ball, get a single hard. Justin Turner couldn't play it, gets on first base, and he seems fiery. He looks pissed. Is that why he's not getting the playing time because he's a bit too fiery? <sighs> I don't know, man. I don't I don't know if I buy that. Why? Why do you think that? Because I don't understand why else he does. They've they've said, Show Walter said that something of the you can't you know you can't screw up the good ones right. The good ones will find right, a way right. to play. But there was something about when he went sent back down to the minors that his attitude was good. Yeah, he took it yeah. well. Why would that be a thing? If it was, if it was, I don't know if that's being fiery more than it is work ethic. Which I'm not saying he doesn't have the work ethic. I'm certainly not in the room to know that. I don't know, and it's been a mystery, really dating back to last year when Buck made some comments too about Vientos. I think it was, well, Mark's had a great year, and I think Buck said, well, in what way? Like almost questioned if he had a great year. There does seem to be, for whatever reason, you know, you bring up the fieriness. I don't necessarily think it's that. There has been some kind of disconnect between Mark Vientos and Buck Showalter. But I really believe in the next week and a half when this trade deadline passes, he's going to play every day because whether Buck likes it or not, and he's probably not going to be here next year anyway, they got to evaluate what they have in him. They got to see. They got to find out, like, is this guy worth being on this roster next year? Is this a guy who can be a DH against lefties and righties? Is this a guy worth being a just a DH against lefties? Is he just a right-handed bat off the bench? What the hell is he? Because none of us know. You know, there are times where Mark Vientos looks overwhelmed at the plate. He didn't have a great offensive day on Sunday. He didn't. He struck out twice. He bounced in with double play. He did look a little bit better on Saturday. We need to find out more about Mark Vientos. And there's going to be a lot of that, unfortunately, over the last few months of the season. We do have the Subway Series coming up. I don't think anyone really cares about that, other than the Mets are playing the Yankees, and the Mets need to win some games. The Mets are playing the Yankees. The Mets are playing the Nationals. The Mets are playing the Royals. The Mets are playing some teams they can beat. I'm not even going to say should beat, because I don't think they should beat anybody. But Justin Verlander is going to be on the mound in one of these games. Jose Quintana will be on the mound in these uh, in the other game. And honestly, I... It's late July. There has been no sign that this team is about to get hot. There have been games here and there, little brief moments, but there has been no full sign that the hot streak is about to begin. Will it begin at Yankee Stadium coming up in the Subway Series? I tend to doubt it, but I will continue to be here as a fan in the midst of two-and-a-half-hour games, daydreaming of them turning it around. But if we're all being intellectually honest with each other, there has been no sign of that occurring. Uh, I agree. It's, it's it's terrible to say that this season is completely washed. It's a, I mean, to go from 101 wins to not making the playoffs when you've expanded the playoffs is disgusting. But I will make a prediction right now. Evan. Yes. Trade deadline is almost a week away, right? Is it officially a week away? Whatever it is. August 1st. Yeah, August 1st. I will make this prediction right now. The person that is least likely, least expected to be on this team come trade deadline, but will still be here at the end of the season, season excuse me, Daniel Vogelbach. <laughs> that guy is going nowhere. He is here for the 2023. Enjoy the ride. As long as he's not playing the predominant, as long as he's not playing the most of the time at DH, I guess I can live with it. If he's just rotting on the bench as a left-handed bat, fine. But if he's if he's starting every game in September, that'd be a that'd be a problem. That that will have an issue with. We do have a busy week of Rico's coming up. We will give you an instant reaction to game 1 of the Subway Series, an instant reaction to game 2 of the Subway Series. We'll also preview this trade deadline. We'll go more in detail on 
who they may be dealing, who may be interested, what veteran players they could be interested in based on that whole, hey, if the guy is controlled for next year, is it worth going after? And obviously the whole Verlander-Scherzer debate as well. We'll go deep into the Mets trade deadline coming up this week, along with the Subway Series and reacting to all those games. You can always email the pod to ricob at gmail.com. Obviously, listen to the fan this week. New schedule begins. Sal Akata, Brandon Tierney in middays, me and Tiki in afternoon drives. So we hope you listen, and we appreciate you downloading another edition, another depressing edition of Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.